Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Flat Chat Podcast. It's lucky for some, uh, with a new Grand Prix in Las Vegas coming this weekend, which nobody's talked about at all, uh, and a new issue of GP Racing magazine on the shelves. Who is going to, in the immortal words of Bruce Forsyth, play their cards right? And who is going to roll Snake Eyes? Snake Eyes, not just the name of a classic uh, Nicolas Cage film from the late 1990s, of course, but also a track by Enter Dr. Evil, uh, Dr. Evil Mode, the Alan Parsons Project. Anyway, let's introduce the guests um, who've been on their travels recently. Matt Q recently returned from San Paolo. You survived with your bulletproof hire car. Yeah, the the hire car in that situation it was fine, but it was the the storm that ripped the lids off the grandstands. Also got to our hotel, so um, all I can say is uh, apologies to the maid who discovered the contents of my breakfast, as it the power and water was not working in the hotel room. Oh, now that's nice, isn't it? <laughs> yes, the glamour of covering Formula One. Luckily, though, yeah. to add to the glamour, luckily a colleague. Uh, their hotel had power and water, so I was able to go and use their shower before escaping to the track. So, yes. Well, this is nice. fabulous news, entirely unanticipated. Now, in the words of the short-lived 80s electronic duo Fiat Lux, it feels like winter again because uh, Mark Gallagher is down in Australia. G'day, Cobber. Yeah. Yeah, good day. Uh, so we're keeping things very Southern Hemisphere then, Sao Paulo and now Adelaide. Um, yeah, just got here a couple of days ago. It was in Las Vegas last week uh, in the run-up to the Grand Prix. So maybe we could talk a little bit about Vegas uh, as people are now descending upon there and suddenly discovering it's not quite as bad as they were all expecting and maybe be, might even be slightly better than they were anticipating. Well, yeah, I, I covered a couple of sports car races in Vegas at about this time of year, um, 20 odd years ago, only before Matt Q was born. Um, uh, people do come to Vegas with preconceptions, um, uh, other people not at all. So, yeah, the the other day I 
posed a question on the platform, which apparently, according to the BBC, we must now refer to as X, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, and I asked, which was the best Las Vegas set novel, James Elroy's The Cold 6000 or Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas? Um, tumbleweed ensued, which means I either asked it at the wrong time of day or F1 Twitter doesn't read books. Um, we've known for a long time it seldom makes logical arguments, but I digress. Uh, as ever, um, this maybe they t- maybe they spend all their time reading your books, Codders, instead. Well, the, as as they should. Um, although the, the sales figures don't suggest that they're selling in that particular number, but uh, you know, if you're if you're part of F1 Twitter and feel like reading a book, go to Amazon. Um, look me up. Ignore the reviews who don't like the books because they're idiots. <laughs> And uh, and and enjoy, and uh, I look forward to the um, uh, royalties check arriving. Not that people send checks anymore, which is a good thing because the banks aren't open anymore. They're all trendy wine bars. Anyway, I digress again. Uh, so as as we look forward to Las Vegas this month, we tasked Alex Kalinorkas with finding out how teams prepare for tracks they've never visited before with a specific focus on um, Las Vegas. And the, the idea of that is that they'll be approaching this weekend with very little data, which means uncertainty. And of course, what um, the people who put together the show in F1 crave is uncertainty. Uh, The teams want certainty. So can we predict the unpredictable? Um, Matt Q, there will have been very little time to do sim runs because of calendar congestion. Uh, I think as as Alex revealed in the feature, the Haas drivers won't actually have done any sim running uh, on, on the Vegas track until after they got back from Brazil. So without even time to do their laundry and other such things that they might have had to borrow the facilities of neighbouring hotels for. It was definitely the Haas drivers do their own livery. I'm sure of sure of that. But yeah, there's, I was speaking to a few people in Brazil and they'd yet to do it on the sim. But even when they get to the sim, this isn't going to be sort of um, like a, a plug in and play, like you're just flicking on the switch on the Xbox because compared to the usual sort of setup, they're really poor on data. So it's actually like an unusually open dialogue between F1, the FIA, Pirelli and the teams. So Pirelli have sent out data around which teams can construct their sims and do their recce laps. But because it's, you know, a lot of it has been resurfaced and they're not quite sure of the properties of that asphalt because it has to be slightly road car bars and it still be oozing and the cold temperatures, whatever. They're not 100% sure. So they've sent limited data to the teams. And if the teams have discovered anything unusual, so, for example, like the standing wave. So, because because the tires could be so cold, but uh, but have from sort of you know the wind chill of driving two hundred miles an hour in sub ten degrees, but the internal temperature will be so high from turning at two hundred miles an hour. There's going to be like standing waves. So they've reported that data back to Pirelli, and then because basically it's in the interest of no one to have this to be a total shambles. Pirelli have then fed that data to everyone, but usually you wouldn't you wouldn't have sort of such a dearth of information this close to a race. So I have a, you know, you sort of suspect that a couple of laps into FP1, drivers will pick up on those, you know, the differences between the asphalt and whatever and what their sim is representing. Like there's certain things, like I remember doing a Formula E track walk a few years ago and the Jaguar team had based their um, braking zones around where 
the basketball hoop from the cor- from the next door park was. And when they got there, that basketball hoop was no longer there. So they're a bit out of kilter, but it only takes them a couple of laps. So if they are using those sorts of references points and they're slightly out, it won't make too much of a difference. But certainly I think um, I think people or teams would rather be a bit more prepared. But then that might go the other way where Oscar Piastri sort of underperformed relative to Lando Norris in Sao Paulo. And a lot of that was blamed on his track inexperience, having, having not raced there before. So whether it might go the other way and I don't know, a canny operator like Alonso might be pulled slightly further towards the pack and, and Piastri will be able to sort of jump ahead. I don't know, but um, yeah, not the, not the usual sort of seamless robotic uh, precision uh, uh, preparation that I guess people might uh, uh, associate with Formula One. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Have a little bit of unpredictability, have a little bit of um, uh, variability. Wouldn't it be great if somebody turned up and just got it completely wrong this weekend? Like Red Bull <laughs> would be would be a good a good good outcome because I think you know coming to this track, um, it is an interesting street circuit. It's got those long high speed sections, the straights. You then need you need a car that's going to work through those. They're not, it's not all 90 degree corners, but quite slow, a little bit technical uh, in parts. And you need the whole thing to work under all circumstances. And I think that really raises the question about, uh, you know, whatever data, when the data that they have received from the FIA and the simulations that they've been able to work on is ultimately highly educated guesswork, but it is ultimately prone to to change. And to your point, Matt, once the drivers get out on track, it'll they'll quickly settle into finding where the opportunities lie, where the issues lie. Uh, the surface of the track, I can tell you, is very good. I've, I've walked around it last week. Um, they've been surfacing it and indeed resurfacing it in stretches. They've been doing kind of one segment at a time to try and uh, minimize disruption to the city. Um, and I know the two contractors who were involved in doing that, they both have a lot of experience um, in that particular, in terms of race racetrack uh, surfacing. And uh, they've done a great job. I mean, I think considering it is a, you know, high volume, I mean, particularly the Las Vegas Boulevard, the, the strip, huge volumes of traffic. I mean, just relentless day and night. Um, and, you know, they've managed to, to do that, and it'll be inter- it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Um, Karen Chandok uh, just today, before we recorded the podcast, um, is in uh, Vegas, and he he put up a little video as he was doing a track walk, and you could see he was really pleasantly surprised with everything that he was seeing, the infrastructure, and um, he, he talked about the track surface and uh, the quality of the tarmac in terms of you know he said it looked looked quite grippy, didn't seem to be too oily. Um, certainly looks very smooth, although you never know about the smoothness of a track until you're tackling it at proper speed, and then you'll you'll soon find out if uh, if there are any issues. But I think the main thing for me is that it's a uh, it's going to be just a weekend, but a little bit of a question mark over it for everyone until they get the lay of the land. And the the this temperature issue. I mean, people have been talking about temperatures as low as four degrees. I looked at the I looked at the forecast today and it looks like it'll be eight or nine degrees at night time, a little bit higher than people were saying. So, I mean, that's obviously that's still low. And the thing is, it is 
it is desert cold, actually very similar to here in Adelaide. So when you have eight or nine degrees at nighttime here because of the desert conditions, the fact there's no humidity, it feels really, really chilly. And uh, that's, that's going to be a little bit of a shock to the system, I think, for the teams and drivers, as well as the tyres. They could have prepared by sitting in this room. Uh, my study is the coldest room in this house, even on a sunny day like um, today. I mean, my, my memory of visiting Las Vegas at this time of year was, was of it not being um, particularly cold. But I suppose uh, th- there's been a lot of conjecture about the drivers having to wear thicker gloves. And I believe I might have rubbished that idea in a previous podcast by pointing out that, you know, as, as a mo- motorcyclist of some 25 years experience, it's the core temperature rather than the finger temperature that um, dictates whether the blood disappears out of your fingers. So they're just going to have to find that out the hard way. Um, in, in terms of the razzmatazz around this Vegas race, that is already very well uh, advanced, isn't it? We've seen the sphere lit up with emojis. Our um, journalistic colleagues who are privileged enough to be out there have been very excitedly tweeting pictures of of the various bits. Um, our former colleague Ian Parks was quite fascinated by the media centre. Uh, our current colleague, Johnny Noble, slightly less so by the rather 1970s carpet in the press room, but it kind of looks ripe for, you know, if, if anyone wandered in there having, you know, guzzled a quart of tequila and a handful of quaaludes, the surface might turn into snakes and stuff like in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. So it's all in keeping. But um, it's 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 going to be a tricky working environment for all concerned, isn't it? With late track sessions, um, Alex actually filed is he's written the cover feature for next month's issue, and he filed that at seven o'clock this morning our time, and said, "I'm just off to try and find something to eat at midnight in Vegas. Wish me luck." I kind of thought, actually, you're going to be in luck because Las Vegas is the city that never sleeps, isn't it? You know, the the they the casinos inside it's always simulated daylight isn't it and mark you've been you've been there recently you'll know all about simulated daylight i mean the thing that's incredible is that if you come down at half past six in the morning to go and have breakfast there'll be people just sitting at the slot machines and the gaming tables having you know tequila and gin and tonics and beers and bottles of wine and it's just it's 24 7 it doesn't stop and you're absolutely right if he's looking for something to eat at midnight that he couldn't have chosen a better city to be in and uh, i think the hotel that i was in was the, the venetian um which is uh the venetian hotel complex is at the corner that the the, the left hander that the cars take on to the the strip uh and my hotel had four, my the Venetian is basically two blocks. So there's just two towers. My block uh, had 14 restaurants in it. And the other block, I think it's 17 restaurants in it. So you literally have just spoilt for choice. So there'll be no no issues at all. I mean, I think what's really interesting is um, when you see someone like Daniel Ricardo saying that, you know, he's been to Las Vegas lots of times and had a lot of fun there. And, and his his approach to this weekend is to try and avoid all the, inevitable distractions that are going to be around i think that the t- obviously las vegas itself has gone to town on the razzmatazz and so and sort of formula one's embraced that you can see a lot of the teams have uh, 
put on extra hospitality programs there and there's all kinds of you know special liveries and helmets and one-off deals being done you know sponsorship deals and promotions being done around the las vegas grand prix so yeah the marketing and commercial departments are hyping the whole thing up i think for, at, at the business end of formula one it's just another racetrack and i think the you know the drivers are just going to want to get on top of those 17 corners as quickly as they can and see whether they can get their cars and the tires to work around there and it's the 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 razzmatazz it'll be it'll be truly in your face uh you know american style and the, the best thing to do is to sit back and let it just wash over you and enjoy it because nobody will do entertainment quite in the way that Las Vegas will do. I think the fact that they've got Donny Osmond singing the American national anthem, they've got Kylie Minogue turning up to do something as well. She's doing an appearance. Um, I mean, last week, you two uh, were finishing their residency, their initial residency at the Sphere, and Bono signed off uh, their final concert by talking about Formula One and saying, um, uh, what a great band would be made if you had Max on drums, Lewis on bass, um, I think you had Daniel Ricardo on vocals and uh, Charles Leclerc on lead guitar, which the mind is rather boggling at the prospect yeah, of that. His strings so, would probably snap yeah, <laughs> if they were installed by the Ferrari mechanics. Probably. But, you know, but, you know that, that clip of, of Bono talking about Formula One to, you know, global audience, whatever, I mean, that's kind of typical of what Las Vegas does. It just sort of mashes entertainment and sport and everything together. And you just have to take it for what it is. So let's see how it goes. People will either love it or loathe it. I'm fascinated to see Donny Osmond do the national anthem. I don't think I've seen him perform anything since he had a hit with, what, Soldier of Love in the 1980s? I'm going to say 1987 as as, as an opening gambit for that one. My, but, uh, my, my wife says Crazy Horses. Oh, that was the seventies, though. Crazy horses when he was, was it, part of the was Osmonds. That the 70s? Yeah, oh, right. he, he had oh, a right. solo hit in the eighties, um, okay. and his brother Jimmy Osmond has become something of a celebrity game show. And um, was 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 he on Celebrity Come Dine with Me? Something like that. He's 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 been on the reality circuit, but Donny did have some solo hits in the nineteen eighties, I think. But I, I think our listener might have to check that on the internet to yeah. uh, ascertain well, the. The, the veritas of, of, of my guesswork. Matt's just gone to sleep here while we talk about the Osmond family <laughs> and uh, the, especially Jimmy, long-haired lover from Liverpool, all of that stuff. I mean, amazing. I think I recognise Donny Osmond most of all from a Friends cameo he did. So uh, I apologise. Oh, right, I'm an yeah. absolute yeah. philistine. Uh, maybe I shouldn't admit to this next bit, but when we were talking off air, as it were, about Donny Osmond and you said Carly, I thought, ah, oh, it's a neighbour's romance. Before then, realising that was Jason Donovan, but never mind. Uh, why? Why would they have it? Why would they have an Aussie singing a national anthem? Why? Why? But there you go. I've, uh, I apologise. I apologise. Should we drag this back on topic? Uh, you, you mentioned Mark the hospitality offering, etc. Now. Um, a couple of months ago, I, th- I think it might have been when we were in Austin, there was some discussion among the journalists, various people who were planning to go to Vegas, about, have you rebooked? Because word got around about a month or two ago that the exorbitant room rates had uh, dropped. And um, where is it? I, I actually took some notes. Um, 
the media hotel was $499 a night. That was their asking price. And various people, I, I, I don't think there would have been many people in the media apart from the high spending TV folk who could swallow that sort of expense. Uh, but the various people have rebooked their other accommodation and are now able to bring in their entire stay for the $499 mark uh, rather than per night. So what do we make of that? Were the hoteliers getting a little bit too grasping too early? Did they overestimate demand? Um, has ha- Have the laws of supply and demand, those, those intersecting curves, dragged Vegas back to reality? I think... Um- there, what I can share with you, I have to be a little bit careful about my source for this, but um, th- what I can tell you is that a number of the t- teams have said about creating their own hospitality offerings in Las Vegas and <clears throat> have caught something of a cold over it. So they're not selling the tickets in the numbers uh, that they thought or indeed for the prices that they hoped for. And that's also being reflected with with some of the hotels. Um, it it's, it has certainly not been the sellout that the organisers were pledging. That's absolutely for sure. And of course, why is that? Well, the prices were extortionate to begin with, and Formula One fans are you know Formula One is popular in the United States, but. Even US-based fans have a limit, which they're not prepared to go to. And once you're getting up towards $1,000 a night for a room, if you're going there for you know, four, four nights and flying in from somewhere and then you're having to buy your tickets, I mean, you're going to be spending ten dollars or $12,000 to go to a Grand Prix, and uh, not many people can afford that. Um, and I think the other aspect is that you know, this is the third United States Grand Prix of the season, and we've had a we've had one quite recently in Austin, Texas, as you mentioned. Um, and it was only a few weeks back, and one of the corporate clients who I'm familiar with that they, they made the decision not to take guests to the Las Vegas Grand Prix because they they just weren't sure how the race would go, and they weren't sure about the disruption in the city, and they also actually from a corporate perspective in terms of corporate hospitality they said we we just decided we didn't really want to spend a lot of money on a race which is at 10 o'clock at night and is going to run until midnight you know you're going to be you're asking your guests to to basically be up and about until two or three o'clock in the morning so they found the austin offering you know more traditional offering just that little bit more attractive. So it's interesting to see how this has played out. We've seen this before with new Grand Prix uh, joining the calendar where there's a kind of a rush of enthusiasm and it's going to be a blockbuster event and you've got the organiser and uh, teams and sponsors kind of trying to cash in on the novelty factor. And and it's not unusual for people to catch a cold at at an inaugural race so it'll be interesting to see what the fallout is from uh this weekend and the thing which will be an embarrassment for formula one is if it is noticeable if there are noticeable patches around the track where you can see that they're provided um accommodation for for fans and they're empty i mean last week when i was there the the hotel i was in was still selling individual rooms, suites, mini suites, 
for you know a few hundred dollars a night. Uh, they had packages including uh, general admission tickets, had packages including grandstand tickets. So that means that somewhere in the system, there's been a volume of tickets purchased uh, by the, um, the Las Vegas has this organization, which is basically the hospitality organization in Las Vegas, which represents casinos and hotels. And clearly they seem to have secured a, a big allocation of tickets, but then not resold all of them. So it'll be very interesting to see how it looks on the day. I'm, I'm sure it won't look awful. I'm sure it'll be, there's certainly, I know lots of people who are going to it, but um, I think the, the volume of uh, tickets being offered and the price at which they were being offered at was just a little bit too rich for your average fan. You know, the, the ticketing system in Vegas is is weird and Byzantine, isn't it? And it seems to involve lots and lots of middlemen. I remember when I took Mrs. Codling to see Barry Manilow at the Paris. Um, yes, indeed. Um, he, he emerged from a trap door looking surprised. And then that expression then never left his yes, face. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I bought the tickets in advance, as you do. But then I had to go and, I thought, collect them from this booth somewhere else in Las Vegas, producing my receipt and whatnot. And having had to do that at a specific time of day, um, that then, what I got there, wasn't even my ticket. I had to go to the ticket office at the hotel where Barry was performing with my little sub-ticket and then queue up again. And um, I kind of thought, well, what, 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 whatever happened to just buying the ticket in advance on the internet and with a, with a QR code or whatever? Just absolutely crazy. It's, it's second only to Monaco in terms of, you know, uh, shadowy businessmen and large organisations having their um, pockets, having, having their fingers in every pie. But um, yeah, God, it is. Uh, have you have you forgotten the obligatory Barry Manilow sort of epithet almost that you always use to to talk about him? Is always uh, every time Codders brings up Barry Manilow, you always say that Barry Manilow, who famously didn't write the song, I, I write, write the songs. The songs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's a fact. He did not write. I write the songs, uh, and uh, you know it's a piece of pub trivia for the ages. Um, I, but I, I was I was going to drag us back to Austin because uh, Matt, you and I and Alex had a highly convivial weekend in Austin, Texas, didn't we? And that was interesting in that it wasn't a sellout, and, and um, uh, the the circuit CEO ahead of that race was trying to spin it positively that we're not going to have the biggest crowd ever, but we're going to have the best crowd ever, and they weren't sure quite why it the the, the figures hadn't gone up. Yes, yeah, they did say Bobby Epstein put a positive spin on that. It's more about sort of uh, providing better facilities for who was for who was already there. I have to say, I've heard extremely similar things to Mark. So. I know of one team that in the run-up to the Brazilian Grand Prix had sold none of their Vegas hospitality packages. And you might think, well, uh, maybe that, you know, th- there's two sides to that, isn't it? Is it ones of, um, uh, I suppose that that might be a team of a lower profile, so they can't attract the audience. But would you not have thought then that the, the people go to Red Bull and Ferrari and find out those ones are all sold out and then filter down and end up at the smaller teams. So does that say anything that the other teams aren't at capacity with all the guests they could have had and sold out? And then like you say, Austin, 
wasn't a sellout. Miami, they were still selling tickets right, basically pretty much on on the door. And um, I, I saw a, a price analysis and it was Vegas. The average ticket is $500 more than Miami, which in itself is $550 more than the average three-day ticket of Silverstone. So it shows you what a sort of a massive or how much prices have been hiked up for for the Americas, the the hotel rooms. I saw also F1 sort of um, saying that, oh, the reason there are still tickets available, and I looked yesterday, and most general admissions of ones you can't buy direct on a website, but it's still like grandstand tickets. And they were saying, well, we, we deliberately kept some back for latecomers. But the, the natural sort of cynic in me says, well, wouldn't you rather have the extra press release of going Vegas sold out, you know, six weeks, six months before the event? Um, interestingly, I, I spoke to Stuart Pringle about this when we were doing like the traditional Autosport British Grand Prix preview. And he was slightly sort of trepidatious because he said, yes, we're a sellout this year. But when our batches of tickets go on sale, it's usually at the end of 2022. Whereas you get to races towards the second half of the season and they will, people will be buying with the Max Verstappen monopoly sort of front and centre. They will know that this season has been a bit of a damp squid. So can you be charitable to Vegas and say fans going for that? No, this season is a bit of a dead rubber. So it might be holding because of that. Or is it because it is exorbitant and it is because the interest isn't there as, as much as possible. So today as we're recording is what Wednesday, the 15th of November, which is the day that Disney plus Braun documentary with Keanu Reeves has landed. I haven't seen it yet. It's got mega reviews. I will definitely watch it. But the splash it's made seems to be fairly minimal beyond racing circles in a way that drive to survive wasn't obviously drive to survive you know almost locked into the fact we were all bums on sofas during lockdown it was like a stratospheric hit and that's what has put that's what's made vegas possible this is uh i wouldn't say it's the jumping off point or the jumping the shark moment for f1 but it is that you know the popularity and the riches of drive to survive have got us to this point where liberty media is really trying to consolidate that blip on the american radar but you, yeah, you've got the Braun documentary, which I'm, I'm sure is very good, but it, it's not going to be the sort of thing that gets brought up down the pub unless, well, it's us, I suppose, or died in the wall motorsport fans. And then after that, as we mentioned on this podcast before, you've got the Brad Pitt film, but it's sort of, what's your, what's your next hit? Because as we know, F1 have broken the business model. Instead of taking hosting fees, they're promoting this themselves. And I think if you convert it to pound, shilling and pence, I think they're, they've spent up to 355 million so far. So those were the financial reports that came out in September. So they've gone above that. But F1 are keeping that business model for Vegas until 2032. So a phenomenal, phenomenal commitment. And sort of, so if you piece everything together, were they expecting a an explosion right at the start and sustain it? Or are they going to have to tweak their operations now and build Vegas into something that, you know, people will come? Because it does look from all our colleagues, I, I am jealous of what they're posting on social media going, I wish I was there in the paddock, whatever, whatever. But fundamentally for 99.9% of people, you will tune in via the broadcaster. And so the on-track action has to be good. Yes, the backdrop of the neon lights and the sphere will be mega. But if it's a tyre shambles, so you've got mandated 18 lamp stints, stints or Max Verstappen walks off into the distance by 25 seconds, that is what a lot of people will take home aside from I'm sure Sky will do some brilliant pre-race bits around the strip or you might get an excellent, if we're lucky, fly pass from the Blue Angels, but that will be, or a national anthem from um, Donny Osmond, no less. But um, that is what you will take home, the on-track stuff. And 
in a way you can't do a lot about that the promoters can't or f1 can't do a lot about that because they've obviously created a scenario where red bull can walk over everyone but that is fundamentally if you're trying to convert people from drive to survive to become died in the wall f1 fans you need the on-track action to be good and, and for it basically outside of singapore which is not an anti-red bull thing it's just it was a good race very few of the races have been mega and that you will pay for that eventually yeah you make you make a very good point um uh, about the uh, Drive to Survive series because I think my my view on it is that the series was a 10-part television commercial for Formula One. And one of the things about Drive to Survive, it's, it democratised Formula One. So one episode would be about Haas, another episode would be about Alpine, another episode would be about Alfa Romeo, another episode would be about Mercedes. So it's it's drawn in fans fascinated by these 10 teams and these 20 drivers. But then you go to an actual race and Max Verstappen wins and Red Bull totally dominates. And there's kind of a couple of other quite competitive teams behind. And then, quite frankly the bottom end of the grid are also runs. And so you've got a you've got a sport which has presented itself as this kind of level playing field where everyone gets in with a shout on the Netflix series. But actually the sporting entertainment side of it is the technical meritocracy that we all know so well. And this year has been uh, I think quite devastating for Formula One. I mean brilliant for Red Bull but devastating for Formula One because here we are wondering if Max is going to win his 18th or indeed his 19th Grand Prix of the season. And all of a sudden, those records that we used to talk about from you know, McLaren winning 15 of 16 races in 88, just it's just all completely been blown away. And look, fans around the periphery, the fa- fans who have been initially switched on to Formula One. To your point, Matt, for those fans to then be converted into diehard, that's that's the next step and it's it's challenging. And you know, there've been a there've been a few commentators, even in America, talking about the fact that, you know, Formula One has built this crescendo, but there's now a threat hanging over it because the died in the wool fans, the fan base who really understand Formula One and have followed it for years and years and years, they will stick with it through thick and thin. Whereas the the more transitory fans who have come into it perhaps in the last two years may may just suddenly now start to find that it's it's not a it, it isn't compelling enough to to make them want to watch all the races and indeed in this case to turn up to Miami and to turn up to Austin and to turn up to Las Vegas and actually buy buy some tickets. Um, I have to say, from my own point of view, and it's being an older you know person around the sport, you, you, you do tend to look back with perhaps rose-tinted glasses. But I mean, I'm a realist and uh, I run a business and I, I know values have changed over the years, but I go to races now and I look at what fans are having to spend in terms of tickets and then merchandise. You know, I look at what the merchandise costs are. I honestly don't understand how how some of the races uh, serve. You know, I don't know how they make it happen. I mean, I just don't understand how the fans get out there. Melbourne Grand Prix earlier this year was just a, it was a fantastic weekend. And there was, you know, kind of almost record crowds again. Um, but again, talking to people who went to it, they all 
commented to me about just how expensive it was. And you know, if you had a if you had a son or a daughter or a or a dad or a mum who asked for a a baseball cap or a or a t shirt, they just couldn't believe how much money it cost. So yeah, it's a, it's going to be an interesting next phase for Formula One's growth. Can they sustain it? Can they keep that uh, audience that they've built up? Um, or are we now going to start down the other side of the of the slope and see a little bit of a tailing off? Well, it's always a bit of a challenge, not just to enunciate the phrase when you follow in the footsteps of John Inverdale and Don the Rose coloured spectacles of the past. Um, shall we return to the present? <laughs> Avoid it, avoiding the foolishness of Inverdale. Um, uh, dial a little bit back down the grid. Um, elsewhere in this month's GP racing, indeed on the cover itself, we analysed the Carlos Sainz situation, which has been an interesting narrative this year. Uh, a few months ago, it was looking as if Ferrari were actually going cool on whether they wanted to keep him on after his contract runs out at the end of next year. That situation has changed as Andrew Benson explores. And um, Matt, there's, there's fascinating details in the piece about how Ferrari's attempts to silk persificate a difficult car has led to the balance of competitiveness shifting between Charles and Carlos this year. And also a little bit of discussion about whether it is possible for Ferrari to create a car that drivers who want different things out of a car can both maximise. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, I have to say, sorry for it, but brilliantly entertaining. So on, they, they put out a, like, um, uh, a team spokesperson to talk through upgrades every weekend. There's a series of teams of picks you do that. And they had Jock Clear, who's actually listed as like Leclerc's driver coach, bit of a funky job title for what he does. But he was talking about, ah, yes, well, we've got upgrades coming there about making this car more benign. And then they come out with this new floor and the first thing Leclerc, Leclerc does is lose his rear and spank it into the wall. So that, that was just quite sort of quite amusing. But then, yeah, you had that point. So, you know, they were obviously, they carried over that um, 2022 car concept and with the bathtub side pods and, and hit a performance ceiling, whereas Red Bull obviously perfected it, but then they had a very clear area of focus, which was get weight out of the car. And so, you know, they started to come away. And I think there was an element of overdriving and then they yeah, tried to make the car more benign. That didn't necessarily work. And so I think Zandvoort was a race where there were sort of back-to-back testing bits and there's basically dialed in more understeer, which massively carried favour with signs. He was, you know, if you think actually, sorry to jump around, but right back to the start of last year, the car was sco- so skittish. You remember signs binning it in the gravel in o- the opening lap in Australia, tangling with Ricardo and Imola. That was because it was such a nervous rear that Leclerc sort of thrived with, really. Um, and, and signs prefers that sort of, um, yeah, sort of lazier front axle. And they went that way, which is why since the summer break, Sainz had a lot of the momentum and and why he's earned that new deal. But yeah, they're having to drive around that. Like you say, it's it's almost, it's been the undoing of, of Max Verstappen and Perez in a way, hasn't it? That balance for, or that shift from understeer to oversteer. So it's about having a car that can stretch to both. And, you know, we I think we've discussed it on this podcast before. It's an absolute nonsense to say that designers design a car to suit one driver. No, they design a car to be as fast as it can be and set up drivers can set up to set it up to suit their driving style that bit more. But fundamentally they have to drive with what is fastest. And if that suits Leclerc, 
or signs, then that's the way it goes. And I think that balance will shift for next year's car because they're not going to sort of design in that understeer. We'll go back towards Leclerc. But I think Ferrari's driver issue, and I mean this is absolute praise to science, is that you want you want the sort of the love child of science and Leclerc, don't you? You want someone with the outright pace and sort of brilliance of Leclerc. But my word is science and intellect. Like really, he speaks so well and sort of almost the the, the sort of piecemeal negotiations he's doing in the thick of a race, isn't it? Where they're negotiating down the alphabet from plan A to plan F and he's overruling the undercut or saying when's a good time to drop back, when's a good time to swap positions. He's he's incredibly articulate sort of all the time, whether he's speaking to the media or, or over radio. But in terms of like the extra brain space he has to to sort of barter with the pit wall, he's an incredibly intelligent operator. I think he's probably just lacking a tenth to, to Leclerc, but otherwise he is, he is really impressive. And I, I know um, Andrew in, in his piece sort of touches upon the Audi links and he would be a mega fit and it'd be a great payday. And certainly at the time, when those Audi links were rife is when his Ferrari stock was falling and Ferrari were considering other options. But now, now you look at it and you hear sort of behind the scenes of how far behind that Audi program is. And I think it's absolutely in science's best interest to stay at Ferrari and, and his performance after the summer break merits keeping him on. But I, I think, I think he's really, really good value and he's utterly captivating speaker and quite a nice bloke as well. So I was sort of happy to, Happy to see him do well. Not that we have our favourites, obviously, but it's it's always it's always easier when someone who's well, even when he's upset, actually. So I spoke to him um, when his engine didn't start in in Qatar, and uh, that aside, when he was particularly miffed, even in even when he's upset, he's still quite articulate. You get a lot more out of an angry or a happy sign than you do out of a angry or unhappy other drivers, I suppose. No mentioning no names. Well, uh, let me mention them because th- these are sage words indeed from Lance Stroll's favourite uh, journalist. Uh, I, well, I, I heard yesterday in, a, in our uh, in our ten o'clock meeting that never happens at ten o'clock. Uh, I don't know why we call it the ten o'clock meeting. Um, it's an aspiration rather than a fact. Um, I, I heard that Lance isn't going to be doing any more media this year, and, and I, I told, uh, I said to Oleg, "Well, that's good because we, we we won't be doing any more Lance this year." So. Uh, yeah, there we go. Well, he if he doesn't, he can afford to pay each of the FIA fines, can't he? For for not turning up and committing to his duties. Um, it'd be a shame. It'd be a shame if he stepped back from. Them. I I don't know if that would happen. I don't know how they could justify that. It would be a shame, but um, yeah, it's it's he'll, and, he'll Andres, be, he'll be doing sorry. he'll be doing the pen, but not any um yeah. sort of special one to one stuff that you might want to do with a driver. I mean, as I say, but as I opined in flat chat this month, you've got Andrea who was really quite cold towards me, not in terms of was rude to journalists, but in his previous role, I don't, you know, he didn't, the media wasn't on his radar, I feel like, as a job, but now he sees it every time he sits down is an opportunity to basically peddle a certain narrative, get the facts right, stop. If he, if he gives you, you know, a really good explanation of how the rear wing interacts with the floor and that McLaren, that essentially you're not giving anything away to your rivals, but you're stopping the spread of misinformation. He uses every session as an opportunity. And I think a lot of people, even his fellow team principals could take a, a leaf out of uh, Stella's book for that alone. 
Yeah, really, really interesting point. And the thing that is 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 a pity to hear about Lance potentially, you know, withdrawing from from doing any media work outside of what he absolutely has to do in terms of FIA stuff is that he's it's actually doing himself damage because you're completely right, Matt. Um, the whole point of doing media is that you can help to ensure that there's no disinformation floating around. You can get the facts right. You can help to steer the narrative, not not necessarily create a narrative, but you can steer the narrative about you. You can give the counterpoint to uh, to any any issues uh, or topics that the media are putting to you. And it's it's a great opportunity. I think one of the best things about Formula One is the fact that there is such a huge media interest. And if you embrace it and you meet it head on, you can really use that in, in lots of ways. It can be incredibly beneficial. But I, I suspect that, you know, Lance, to me, seems to operate within a, so quite a closed environment anyway. It's quite a narrow, narrow environment. And um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with, with him anyway over the the coming months and possibly years. But I've, uh, the, the, this must have been one of the worst years that he has endured from a number of different perspectives, not only his accident early in the year, uh, which clearly had a knock-on effect, but just to see how Fernando has come into the team and, and done what Fernando was always going to do, which is just to ultimately run 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 rings around him most of the year. Um, the, the, the thing that's quite striking as well about um, people who pull away from the media is it's, it's kind of a self-created battle, which they never really win. It just... If they're unhappy with media coverage that they've had, pulling away from the media isn't going to make it any better. It actually will always make it worse. So it's it's quite a it's quite a naive approach to to trying to shut things down. Yeah, I blame Jack Villeneuve. <laughs> there, I said it. What for also, everything? Also, or, oh or yeah, yeah. Pulling- <laughs> minimum minimum uh, effort put into anything not in his contract. Yeah, you know, when when you have the guy who used to be head of British American Tobacco um, mentioning in his memoirs uh, about what an awful sod Villeneuve was to deal with and how he wouldn't do a single thing on the corporate front as well uh, that wasn't enshrined in his contract unless he was paid extra for it and uh, how Jensen Button was so much better. Uh, and th- that was, of course, in, in the BAR years. But it, it all started um, at the beginning of Jack's career when he, he refused to have um, to countenance anything that wasn't in his contract. And even the one of the first Formula One games uh, had all the rest of the driver names on the grid, except one, which was Driver X, I think, uh, in in the Williams, one of the first licensed PlayStation Formula One games, which was just embarrassing for the sport. And also, before I sign off on the Jacques Villeneuve front, probably the least impressive world champion. Um, so you know, if, if anyone wants to argue, I'll wait. Um, can we go back to talking about Carlos Sainz briefly? Um, oh, yes. Yes, please yes. do. Yeah, because I, I must say that I really enjoyed the feature. Uh, Andrew has done his usual job of really delving beautifully into uh, unpicking um, 
Carlos this season. And, you know, Matt, Matt's covered kind of the the way that the car development has gone. I, I think from a human perspective, it's it's so interesting because he knows he's in a team where the, the de facto team leader is, is Charles Leclerc. They have this kind of on-screen friendship, which, as Andrew has pointed out, a couple of occasions has become a little bit stressed. Um, and yet they seem to have managed to get through that and have come out the other side. And it's, um, I think it's a testament in both of them, actually. In Carlos's case, of course, he one of the things that he has in his great favour is his DNA, because any of us who have ever had the pleasure of dealing with his father, Carlos Sainz Senior. Um, uh, when I covered when I covered Formula One back in the eighties, I used to do a couple of rounds of the World Rally Championship, and I remember getting to to meet Carlos Sainz when he was, you know, absolutely at the top of his game in rallying. And I look at his son now, see how Carlos Junior is getting on, and I think, you know, what a family they 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 know how to conduct themselves. They are very impressive. They're multilingual. They're not only good at behind the wheel, but they're good at some of the stuff we just talked about. They're very good at understanding the importance of how you handle the media, how you conduct yourself, the things that you say, the things that you don't say. And, of course, in, in Carlos uh, Jr.'s uh, corner, he has his father's expertise and wisdom, which means that you know some things aren't going well at Ferrari. There might be a temptation to to say, oh, well, we should focus on Audi. But you can, you know, you can imagine Carlos Sr. sitting down and saying to him, listen, um, there's just a few things to focus on at Ferrari. You'll get that right. And I think the win in Singapore, uh, very interesting. Again, uh, the way Andrew explains the, the dynamic in the team, that victory, that very clever strategic drive in uh, in Singapore, and also the way in which Frederick Vasseur has brought an interesting approach to to managing the dynamic between the drivers and allowing strategy to to fall in just in the favor of the team getting the best possible result and not minding whether it's Carlos or or Charles on a certain day so the you know the the, the dynamic of Frederick's approach and I mean, he, one thing, aside from him being a good engineer, one of the things that, that I think Frederick Vasseur has always stood out for me on is, is his ability to understand drivers and to to give them the support that they need that means you get the best out of them. So I think Carlos has had a very interesting year. It's It's great to see him come through it ultimately in a very positive way. And as Andrew says in the article, you know, there's he's probably got a quite a long and bright future now. Uh, at at Ferrari, and um, he still has options if he if he wanted to take them elsewhere. But it's been a, you know, it, he he's a, I think a really fascinating uh, figure, Carlos Sainz. Um, he's a kind, of, you know, the, there aren't many drivers in the paddock who you would welcome the opportunity to go and have a dinner with, and he would be one of them because you just know that. This is a, a very rounded individual, and there's a lot. There's a lot to him. You could have a really good conversation about a lot of different topics. Oh yeah, we did um, a few years ago um, when he was with uh, Toro Rosso, as was um, had a very convivial uh, day and evening in Madrid, where um, we 
took him behind the scenes of I forget the name of the Real Madrid um, stadium. Uh, fo- football is a foreign Santiago Bernabéu. That that'll be the one. Um, yes, yeah. He's so uh, he's a, uh, we went into the changing room stuff. He was excited. Um, I sort of well, you know, it's a footballer's changing room. So of course, you know, it's gold taps and stuff because you know football's got lots of money. Anyway, I'm digressing again. Uh, lovely chap. We wish him the best for next year. Hopefully, Ferrari will equip him with a better car. Um, in in a sort of a semi news just in front. Obviously, over the past couple of days. There has been an interesting announcement to coincide with Las Vegas. Famously, Hot Chocolate sang, Heaven is in the back seat of my Cadillac. Unfortunately, Matt, this was the 1970s. Now, General Motors has registered to join Formula One as a power unit manufacturer in 2028 via its Cadillac brand. And of course, the intention is to partner with the Andretti team. So this announcement very much bound up in all the politics surrounding that. Uh, we, I think we've dug into the Andretti business a fair bit in previous podcasts, but this announcement has kind of moved the story on a fair bit, hasn't it, Matt? You were, all, you were on top of this story for Autosport in the absence of various other parties of the first part this week. I have to say, if, uh, if a pound was donated to charity for every time someone said the phrase, unfortunately, this was from the 1970s and uh, could do a lot <laughs> Good. Anyway, Operation uh, U Street. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. I, I got. Uh, I'll admit this. I got caught out ever so slightly. I was in the uh, the the uh, press release came out twenty minutes before the embargo, and I was uh, I was actually uh, timing a, uh, a a trip to Lidl on my lunch break, so I had to run to the car to type it up, and there's no damn signal in little car park so I had to drive up the road and then pull over on on in a layby so I could fire my email. But we made the embargo. We broke the news, so it's all. This is a anyway, quintessential embargo imbroglio. Absolutely. So yes, it's I, I I keep shifting between with this announcement between it means loads or it means nothing. So would Cadillac or General Motors announce on the eve of the Vegas Grand Prix and they're going to send loads of big goods to Vegas? Would they announce that they're going to? build a Formula One engine and they say that ProTech technology is already in development, would they do that unless they were sure that Andretti would be allowed to form an 11th team on the grid? Because they're not going to go with anyone else as, as we understand. So that would be a phenomenal sort of like loss of face, wouldn't it? That if they've announced that and it gets no, then all the, the, the snarky press release that has to come out when the Andretti bid gets turned down and a lawsuit, it just gets all a bit more bitter and a bit more horrible. So like, would they go through all of that unless they had certain assurances? But then I think the other way around, well, all it does is underline that the relationship between FIA and FOM is so fractured that one does one thing, one does the other. There's no consultation. Like why this whole new team's business started in the first place was without, you know, FOM approval or, or, or assurance that it would lead anywhere. So is MBS or Mohammed Ben Salayem taking another signature? Is that is that any different to that? No. But then again, the, the sort of broader context is that in Detroit, there's been loads and loads of auto union worker strikes. So it could well have been that Cadillac signed up for it or General Motors signed up for this a little while ago, but they held back on the announcement because it sort of felt 
out of step, a bit misplaced in the way that the team bosses didn't get it right in Austin, where they're talking about a oh, 1 million euro fine. These numbers are obscene for fans in a cost of living crisis. Here, Michael Andretti, give us $600 million to join F1, please. What did actually General Motors just sort of navigate that dichotomy, dichotomy slightly better and, and held back on their announcement? So that's what I flipped between. Either way, it's a huge announcement. Brilliant to have an American manufacturer, and obviously that joins Honda and and um, and Renault and and uh, and Prime Mercedes, Red Bull. Uh, could you sort of stir up the Ford GM dynamic potentially? Even though you know Ford is is more of sort of a badging exercise on the Red Bull, but that's just what I I I I, I don't know because up until this point everyone you've spoken to sort of off the record has been so this Andretti thing will never happen. The current teams don't want it to, but all their arguments have been answered now. Has it? Oh, the, the circuits are too small to house another team. Well, that's a nonsense Christian Horner. 14 of the tracks on the calendar have um, housed F1 before when it had 12 teams and, you know, are Saudi Arabia going to go, Oh no, that's a limiting factor for us. I don't think so. And the other one has been, well, do they add value to F1? An American team, Andretti, General Motors. Yes, yes. And yes, it's every, it's every box tick now. So it just, I'm hoping that the reason General Motors have made the announcement and gone on record is because they have heard or they're getting indications from FOM that despite the massive resistance, they're going to tell the 10 teams to lump it or basically get over it. And, and they will be, and they will be confirmed. And also, does this go right back to where we were at the start of the podcast? If you even FOM or whatever, do you go, well, actually, we take a team now because not only is maybe we need to take the team now before the interest tails off, but is it three years down the line with in the, following the death of Dietrich's Massachusetts? Did Alpha Tori actually go, or Hugo Boss as they will be next year or whoever, do they actually go, no thanks? And then if we've already got Andretti getting up to sort of a competitive level, do they then slot in as like that 10th team and we're back to 10, uh, 20 cars in, in three years time after the drive to survive bubble? I don't, I don't know, but I hope, I hope, sorry, I'll end the point here, but I hope it's good news rather than, yeah, this just makes a fallout and the legal case of why the Andretti Cadillac bid has satisfied every, every criteria and still not been accepted into F1. I just hope this isn't sort of fuel to that inevitable sort of, litigation i think the um the, the the gm announcement is fascinating because it's such a, a a strong endorsement of the andretti bid um it's uh you know general motors chief executive um mark Rose uh, being quoted in the press release and the, the person who they absolutely ha- have on side is the president of the FIA, Mohammed bin Suleyam. And, you know, I've actually written about this in my column in the in the latest issue of the magazine. The fact is that bin Suleyam has passed the parcel to Stefano Domenicali in a very resolute way and said, you know, w- we believe that this team deserves to get an entry. And when you, I've just got, uh, ben Silliam's tweet in front of me from the General Motors announcement saying, delighted with the news that GM have registered as a power unit supplier for FIA F1. 
this is a further endorsement of the FIA's power unit regulations and the presence of the iconic American brands Andretti and General Motors is good for the sport. Well, you cannot get stronger than that from the FIA's president. Uh, does that give GM the confidence to put out a press release and make a statement? Absolutely it does, because what we have here is you have a, a tough negotiation going on with, in one corner, Andretti, and now General Motors, and in the other corner, the majority of the existing teams who feel like they're being railroaded into taking an 11th team and handing over a proportion of their prize money. And Stefano Domenicali's, you know, got this slightly unenviable job of trying to to make the right call because he'll have Toto Wolff and Christian Horner and a lot of other team principals saying to him, Listen, Stefano, we have gone through thick and thin to get the sport this far. Are we seriously going to give away a slice of the cake to someone? Now that we've got everything looking rosy, Michael Andretti wants to turn up. And, of course, the other thing is it's not even just about the money. And, by the way, the money always comes first. It is, I'm told, also about the manner of the way in which Michael Andretti has gone about it. So there is, there is a degree of personal uh, sort of acrimony, uh, might be too strong a word, but they, 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 a lot of the teams really did not appreciate the way Michael Andretti went about trying to to kickstart his entry, turning up in, in Monte Carlo with a sheet of paper saying, sign here and let me have a, a slice of the action. I think they felt it was it was um, a sort of a backdoor grab to come in. So It was a little bit a like when he tried to overtake Gerhard Berger at the start of the 1993 uh, Brazilian <laughs> Grand Prix. <laughs> I mean, Sorry, do carry on. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, it's, um, I mean, the, the point I've made in my column is that the FIA, and I mean, by the way, the FIA have gone through this process in which they have said, Andretti is the only one that we support and we believe in their, in their, in their plan. I've then had team principals tell me that they have met Michael Andretti. They have spent two hours with the guy. And at no stage do they see how he has the capability or understanding of what it is really going to take to run a Formula One team. So those are the, the sort of two ends of the spectrum. But you know, going back to the to the FIA um, going through the business plan that Andretti put in front of them, that was supposed to be a five-year plan. So they're supposed to basically Andretti supposed to outline how he's going to fund and and organize the first five years, a whole operational plan, the technical plan, and the financial plan. And the point that I make in my column this month is, is that financial plan is going to be fascinating because if he has got a big sum of money allocated each year coming from prize money, you'd have to say that formula, you know, Stefano Domenicali should reject it because you cannot possibly just imagine that your business plan is going to be predicated on Formula One giving you a ton of money to come and do it. And I understand the fans saying, well, Andretti deserves to come in. They're a great name. There has been lots of great names in Formula One over the years. I'd love to see a Brabham team. I'd love to see a Lotus team. I'd love to see, you know, there's lots of teams and, lot, and lots of people, by the way, that I would love to see have a Formula One team. People like Trevor Carling, who were desperate to come into Formula One and, you know, would have loved to have done. Lots of lots of other people I could, could mention who have um, 
you know, run excellent team in lower formula and we'd love to have broken through into Formula One. So just because you've got a nice name over your door doesn't give you a right uh, to come in. There needs to be a business plan. And my my view is that in the middle of all of what we're seeing, the only solution isn't that General Motors are going to make an engine. It's going to be the dollars on the table. Uh, how much money is either going to be paid to secure the entry or how much money is not going to be taken out of the existing prize fund to enable Andretti to compete uh, in the sport. So the next few months are going to be fascinating. And I think maybe, Matt, you mentioned sort of law- lawsuit somewhere in your in your summary there. And uh, m- my fear is that if Formula One rejects Andretti on the basis that, that you know, and they'll, they'll come up with all the reasons why they don't want to have it. I think we could see a lawsuit develop pretty quickly because Liberty's an American uh, uh, company. Uh, you know, the Formula One is listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Andretti has raised a huge amount of money, uh, well, relatively speaking, uh, a lot of, of money on, in the United States. And if he has got General Motors lined up behind him, it's not impossible to see a classic kind of American legal case develop to say we should be allowed in and there's no good grounds on which you should be stopping us. It's uh, anti-competitive to to basically run the sport as an elite club. Well, I think um, as, as anyone who's paid attention to the recent COVID inquiry in the UK will know that um, not actually having an idea of what's involved in doing something is no barrier to actually being in charge of doing that something. So it's very much the spirit of the age. So um, the I, I think not knowing how to run a Formula One team need not be a barrier. But uh, I think, yeah, Mark, you've been around for, for a while in the sport. Um, Formula One history is littered with failed F1 teams whose owners predicated their business plans on share of the revenues. I think most recently, um, I forget the Ovo Energy chap who bought Manor because Jules Bianchi had scored a point in Monaco and thought that the gold would rain from the heavens in terms of prize money thereafter. And when it didn't, he all of a sudden developed... Um, very short arms when delving into his pockets. The sport has been through a very long and shaky development uh, at times where teams have come in and, and then disappeared very quickly. And the thing that I always try and mention when I talk about team teams that have failed in the past, people talk about teams failing and uh, they talk about the poor team principal or whoever it was that tried to do it. The thing that I, the thing that I always feel is that I have known suppliers to go bankrupt I've, I've known people to lose their houses because a formula one team went under and it is and this isn't been in recent times you know those four teams that came into formula one i supplied the engines to in 2010 2011 and as i say in the feature you know one of those one of those teams had absolutely no clue what they were doing a couple were living on a bit of a dream really and one had funding but didn't really have the expertise to sustain it over any length of time and they all came in with the blessing of the FIA and and were allowed into Formula One and they were all gone within a few years so this is all quite recent history we also have a situation where I mean I list again I list them in the column a lot of the teams in Formula One today have quite recently faced an existential 
uh, crisis, you know, in, and it's only been through this liberty era that stability has been achieved. And we've had the benefit of the Netflix effect and the growth of sponsorship in the United States and everybody suddenly smiling and, and all the rest of it. But what goes up very often comes down. We just talked about, you know, audience figures. If audience figures drop in any significant way, over the next years, it's it's not impossible to imagine, uh, uh, you know, a future crisis developing. All these things are cyclical. They are all cyclical. And, uh, you know, Liberty and Stefano Domenicali as chief executive, he'll be keeping his eye firmly fixed on what do we need to do to sustain Formula One in, in a in the next decade. And Matt, whenever you mention the fact that Liberty are the promoters, you know, Formula One itself is the promoter of the Las Vegas Grand Prix and have signed a 10-year contract to do that. They need stability in the sport for the next 10 years. And those are the fundamental considerations that they have. So it's it's going to be an interesting few months and see to see how it pans out. It is indeed. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in in this podcast. We are out now, out of time. But what what a breadth of subject matter we've had! Existential crises. We've navigated a dichotomy. I'm not sure whether one navigates a dichotomy or bridges it or de-dichotomizes it. Even um, if if the listener would like to make themselves heard, you can get hold of us on on Twitter. And um, so yeah, it is time for me to thank my guests, uh, Mark. You you are released to have a little glass of wine to conquer your jet lag. Thank you very much. Been a pleasure. Speak to you. Look forward to speaking to you next month. And and Matt, you know, we presumably you won't need to go back to Little again today, so we can give you a little respect. Absolutely. I have all the ingredients I need to put the uh, slow cooker on after we've finished uh, recording this. And then I shall see you um, sometime Tuesday evening at Heathrow Airport as we jet off to uh, the UAE for the season finale. We will indeed. Now, there's the thing, isn't it? That shows the way the cost of living has gone for young folk nowadays. It's gone from smashed avocado on toast and Netflix to slow cooking, something that only uses about as much wattage as a light bulb over the day well there you go thank you for listening um it is uh, uh, a time for us to bid you farewell uh, don't forget there is a new edition of gp racing magazine on the newsstands if you want to find out your nearest stockist you can go to our distributors website it's www.seymour.co.uk for their store finder that is seymour spelled as in Seymour Hirsch, the uh, 1970 Pulitzer Prize winning American investigative journalist. Uh, we, We will see you again next month. Sports Social Podcast Network.